Welcome to the Ellen Hutchins Trail, where you can discover the fascinating story of the short but remarkable life of Ireland's first female botanist. Join us as we walk in Ellen's footsteps and experience the beautiful environment which inspired her truly pioneering work in studying and recording the plants, lichens and seaweeds of this stunning region. This trail will take you from the windswept islands and shores of beautiful Bantry Bay, through wild woodlands at Glengariff, to the spectacular mountains that run along the Cork and Kerry border. As we travel, you will hear the story of a talented and determined young woman whose short life was marred by illness and family difficulties, making her achievements in the natural sciences all the more impressive. Despite her ill health and the societal constraints imposed on women at that time, Ellen's passion for her subject, her gift for illustration and her diligent ingenuity have guaranteed her an eminent position in the annals of Irish botany. As a child, Ellen was sent to school in Dublin, where she became ill. A family friend, Dr Whitley Stokes, took her under his care in his Dublin home. When Ellen was called back to Ballylickie to look after her ill mother and her disabled brother Tom, we are told that she dreaded becoming confined to the house without any company of her own age. Dr Stokes advised her to take up the study of botany, which would encourage her to spend time outdoors and also give her an interesting indoor occupation, examining, recording and preserving the plants she collected. Ellen described Dr. Whitley Stokes as My good friend and instructor in botany. He introduced Ellen to James Mackay, botanist at Trinity College Dublin, and Mackay sent Ellen's specimens to many of the eminent botanists of the day. Ellen became a valued member of a community of specialist botanists. One in particular, the English banker, botanist and antiquarian, Dawson Turner, in Yarmouth, on the East Anglican coast of England, became Ellen's greatest mentor and friend. Although they never met in person, their correspondence led to a deep friendship that developed over a seven-year period. Dawson Turner named one of his daughters Ellen in her honour and asked her to become the child's godmother. He wrote to Ellen that he knew no female in the world whom he should so earnestly wish a child of his to emulate. Each track on this audio guide is introduced with an extract from some of the many letters that Ellen wrote to Turner during the course of their correspondence, giving a unique insight into Ellen's character and worldview. When you are ready, we will begin at the first stop on our heritage trail, Garyverka Graveyard, close to Bantry Town Centre. Gary Verker Graveyard, Bantry. I am settled up in bed to write you a line. I have been many months in bed, not able to turn or move myself. I am, thank God, greatly relieved, but very ill still. Reduced to a skeleton, I frighten everybody. I cannot write more. 
I cannot read at all now or amuse my mind in any way. And this is worse than pain for a mind once active and though ever struggling with disadvantages, seldom unemployed. Send me a moss, anything just to look at. These are the last words Ellen ever wrote to Dawson Turner. Sadly, she died just two months after writing them. Ellen Hutchins was born at Ballylickey on the shores of Bantry Bay in 1785 and lived there for most of her life. In the difficult period leading up to her death, Ellen referred to her correspondence with Dawson Turner as the one source of happiness in her life at that time. She suffered from ill health throughout her short life and died just before her 30th birthday in February 1815. Though her grave is not marked, she is believed to be buried outside the south wall of the church here in Garryverka graveyard. A plaque was erected on the wall of the church in August 2015, 200 years after her death, during the first Ellen Hutchins Festival, now an annual event which celebrates her life and her important contribution to science. As you can see, the plaque states that she was a natural history pioneer in cryptogamic botany and coastal flora and fauna. Cryptogamic is the scientific name given to non-flowering plants, such as seaweeds, lichens, mosses and liverworts. Ellen specialised in this curious and difficult branch of botany. As seaweeds were little understood at this time, Ellen's work in this area was particularly important and pioneering. You may note that the word fauna is also included on the inscription. This is because Ellen also studied seashells. Although there is no marker over her grave, Ellen left a significant legacy to botany, and her name lives on in the species of previously unknown seaweeds, lichens, mosses and liverworts that were named after her by leading botanists of the day, with Latin names that contain her surname, such as Eulota Hutchinsiae. Some also have common names like Hutchins Pincushion and Hutchins Hollywood. The beautiful specimens that she prepared are held in many herbaria around the world and her name is remembered and kept alive each and every time these specimens are examined. The church itself is a fairly simple building but boasts a fine neo-Romanesque doorway which is part of a vault where at least three of the earls of Bantry are buried. This was the first Protestant church to be built in Bantry Town and dates from 1721. It was in use during Ellen's lifetime but became redundant after St. Brendan's Church was built beside the town centre square in 1818. The graveyard, however, continued to be used by families who had existing plots, with the last burial being in 1985. Bantry itself had developed into a prosperous fishing town by the time Ellen returned to the area from Dublin in 1805. Subsequently, the Napoleonic Wars created a huge demand for agricultural produce and the promise of work on fishing boats drove the population of the town to 4,275 by 1831.
Blue Hill and Beach, Bantry. Your very interesting letter found me busy preserving mosses, at which I have been employed almost night and day since I got your book. I must again thank you for it and all the pleasure it has given. What a variety of new reflections, the examination of objects so minute, so various and so beautifully formed brings to one's mind. In 1809, Ellen was asked by her good friend Dawson Turner to prepare a catalogue of all the plants found in your neighbourhood for the Linnaean Society of London. Ellen listed a total of over 1,100 species, including flowering plants, mosses, liverworts, lichens and seaweeds, with their Latin names and often included a note of where she found them. One of her favourite hunting grounds for seaweeds was along the shoreline near Blue Hill, on the outskirts of Bantry. Blue Hill is a drumlin that was formed thousands of years ago by the movement of glacial ice sheets across the landscape. Beneath your feet, as you stand on the beach, you will see a huge variety of stones which were brought here from many miles away and deposited when the ice sheets melted. The beautiful views from the beach across Bantry Bay towards Widdy Island and Bantry Town remain largely unchanged since Ellen's time. In the upper intertidal zone, you will find seaweeds such as bladder rack and channeled rack, of which Ellen said, It is so common a plant in this country that the shore is as yellow with it as the land is with firs. As the tide drops, other seaweeds come into view, including the distinctive large fronds of common kelp. Look out for the many lichens covering the rocks, including the distinctive yellow Xanthoria parietina. Plants recorded by Ellen, which can be seen along the shoreline today, include bittersweet, with its little red berries, both the yellow and pink flowering varieties of kidney vetch and the low-growing shrub creeping willow. Small groups of kayakers may paddle by as they travel the Blue Way, which passes the beach. It's likely that Ellen usually arrived here by boat. In a letter to James Mackay at Trinity, she says, I am to have the boat and crew all the next summer to go where I please, so that you may expect a good parcel at the end of it. I have high hopes of adding to our collections. If you have some time and would like to take a short stroll, why not head out along the shore which runs parallel to a little-used airstrip, which is a popular walk for locals? Widdy Island I have lately been so successful in finding sea plants that I can no longer resist the inclination I feel to trouble you with another letter and to send you a little of what I have met with in the hope that they may be interesting to you. Roughly 5 kilometres by 1.5 kilometres in size, Whitty Island lies nestled at the head of Bantry Bay. The seashore off Whitty was where Ellen found many seaweeds new to science. She would head off in a small boat from Ballylicky, sometimes with a young servant girl or boy to help her. Ellen visited the highly inaccessible Gorain Rocks, 
off the west end of the island in search of new and interesting specimens. She writes about one seaweed found there. Mine was found on the 18th of September, and I suppose the fruit ripens in winter, but as the rock where it grows is at some distance in a very exposed place and very difficult to land on, except in the calmest weather, I have not been able to go to it. I shall, however, attempt it in the very first fine weather and hope to find the plant in fruit. During Ellen's lifetime, around 450 people lived on the island. They were mainly engaged in fishing and small-scale farming. Today, the population has reduced to approximately 20. The island's climate, like other parts of southwest Cork, is influenced by the Gulf Stream, creating a unique ecology and wealth of wildlife. When the renowned Welsh seaweed botanist Lewis Dilwyn visited Ellen and her family in 1809 during a tour of Waterford, Cork and Kerry, he was taken out to Widdy by Ellen's brother in the family's pleasure boat. Dilwyn described Bantry Bay as perhaps the best garden in the world for the marine algae, and they there grow in deep pools secure from the ravages of every storm and attain an enormous size. The comment about enormous size links to a story about Ellen's drawings which are incredibly accurate and lifelike. She was also very particular about drawing a representative sample of the plant, not the largest or brightest she could find. Early on, some of her drawings were not accepted by Turner or Dilwyn as being true representations because they differed so greatly from the plants that grew where they lived. But soon they became aware that Bantry Bay really was somewhere very special for seaweed. In one letter, making her case for how careful and accurate she was, Ellen wrote, The drawing I sent is very like one appearance of the plant. So like that a poor little country girl who I employ to bring one of my boxes and assist me on the rocks saw it and put her fingers to the paper to try and see if she could not take up the plant. Ellen first drew a seaweed in July 1808. I had great pleasure in finding Fucus tomentosus with fruit. Fearing that drying may alter its appearance, I have attempted to draw it as if it appeared when recent. Dawson Turner was absolutely delighted with the drawing and had it engraved and used in his publication. Before this, Ellen had experimented with other ways of keeping a seaweed fresh. If I could get any liquor to preserve plants in, it would be of great use. I tried brandy. The colour was spoiled, but the form was preserved. It's easy to spend a quiet afternoon walking along Widdy Island's pretty lanes, or taking the three-kilometre way-marked trail, which is part of the Sheep's Head Way. Beautiful red and purple fuchsia brings colour to the island's hedgerows throughout the summer and autumn. Although abundant in the present day, Ellen did not find fuchsia, now a symbol of West Cork, growing here 200 years ago. This South American species only became a popular hedging plant after Ellen's time. Although abundant in the present day, and now a symbol of West Cork, Ellen did not find fuchsia growing here 200 years ago. This South American species only became a popular hedging plant after Ellen's time. 
Other flowering plants that Ellen recorded on the island include dwarf elder, rest harrow, wild radish, and narrow-fruited corn salad. Historically, the island has been influenced by the strategic significance of Bantry Bay's deep anchorage. Dilbin wrote, Since the French appeared on this coast, the summits of this island have been strongly fortified, as have those of many other islands in this heavenly bay. Ellen would have seen the three fortified batteries being built on Widdy following the failed invasion of the French Armada in 1796. Richard White of Bantry House, which can be seen from the Widdy Island Ferry, played a role in resisting the attempted invasion and was given the title Baron Bantry in recognition of his loyalty to the British Crown. He was later to become the first Earl of Bantry. Ballylicky. My time is now so entirely occupied with minute domestic concerns, and I may add troubles, that I have little leisure and less spirit to attend to anything amusing. A plaque on a small gate pillar by the public road near the bridge over the Ovan River commemorates Ballylicky House as Ellen's birthplace and home. It was here at Ballylicky House, by the Ovan River and the seashore, that she wrote her letters and identified, preserved and painted the plants that she found. The house was added to over the centuries, but it was destroyed by fire in 1976. However, it has been carefully rebuilt to its original Georgian proportions. Ellen's grandparents, and subsequently her parents, lived in the house as tenants of Viscount Lord Kenmare. The Hutchins family continued to live here until the 1920s, after which it passed to the Franco-Irish Graves family, who ran it as a hotel and restaurant for many years. The property remains in private ownership and is not open to the public. Lord Kenmare wrote copious notes on his tenants, including on Ellen's father. He has an excellent house on the premises equal to a man of £500 a year. Ellen was the second youngest of 21 children, but only six of the children survived to adulthood, and Ellen grew up as part of a very small family. Her father died when she was two, and her only sister died two years later, leaving Ellen with a widowed mother and four brothers. The family valued education and chose to educate their children, including their two daughters. However, there clearly were financial constraints, as Ellen's letters include comments such as All the fine books on botany are expensive, and my mother cannot afford to give me books. By the age of 20, in 1805, Ellen was back home in Ballylicky, caring for her ill mother and her brother who was disabled. Ellen used her spare time on walks collecting specimens to bring them home to be examined, identified and preserved. James Mackay, the botanist at Trinity College Dublin, when visiting her in Ballylicky in the summer of 1805 while on a plant hunting trip, suggested that Ellen look at seaweeds. This was a neglected branch of botany at the time, 
and her investigation of it would be a very useful contribution to his task and the field of botany generally. Ellen was delighted to have found someone who shared her passion for plants and who had asked for her help. She soon sent specimens to him of new discoveries she was making, not only in seaweeds, but also mosses and other plants. She also sent plants and shells to Dr. Whitley Stokes. Her caring responsibilities were considerable. My poor brother requires to have me always near to write for him and attend him in all the little matters that make him comfortable and that no person who has not nursed the sick can imagine. Ballylicky and its beautiful surroundings clearly provided Ellen with some much-needed solace. Ellen planted seeds and plants sent to her by James Mackay in a spot which became known as Miss Ellen's Garden. We know from the letters that she had a glasshouse and loved gardening. I am very busy planting and gardening and making alterations outside, which I delight in. In her plant list, she often noted where she found rare mosses and lichens, and from these entries we can learn a little about the gardens at Ballylicky. There were pools in the lawn, gooseberry bushes, apple trees and a cherry tree. The Welsh botanist and naturalist, Lewis Dillwyn, visited the Hutchins household on his journey around the southwest in 1809 and commented, We found that Ballylicky is a tolerably good-sized gentleman's house, situated among small but pleasant plantations at the head of a little cave and commanding a beautiful prospect of the bay and its surrounding mountains. He goes on to say of the Hutchins household and Ellen, The liberality, politeness and hospitality of all these we have great cause to remember, and Miss Hutchins amazed me by the extent and depth of her botanical knowledge. She naturally possesses very strong senses and pleasing, unaffected manners. Snave Beach I am anxiously collecting shells and hope to have a tolerably good collection of natives for you, probably as many species as anyone shore produces. Along the coast northwest of Ballylicky sits a picturesque little gravel beach where the impressive Comhola River enters Bantry Bay at Snave Bridge. Ellen collected many of her seaweed specimens along this shore. She also collected seashells here and sent them to Dawson Turner for his daughter, Maria. Ellen is known to have identified at least two new species, including the wing shell. Seaweed, sand and shells were all taken from the shore as fertilizer for the land. But another source of calcium was to be found offshore. As Viscount Ken Mayer wrote of Ellen's father... He and all my tenants have the advantage of a most excellent manure in coral sand, which they rise in several parts of Bantry Harbour, especially off Glengariff, by drudging in about eight or ten fathom, and when turned out enriches the land for twenty years after. This 
Sand, also known as merle, is actually a type of coralline algae and is still dredged from Bantry Bay and sold as an organic soil improver. Snave Townland lies between Ballylicky and Ardnagashel. In 1813, Ellen informed Dawson Turner that she and her mother have moved to Bandon for better medical attention. We find a different version of the story from her cousin Thomas Taylor, who wrote to Dawson Turner that Ellen's eldest brother had thrown her and her mother out of the house at Ballylicky. From documents and letters, it appears that Ellen's two older brothers, Emmanuel and Arthur, were involved in a long-running series of disputes with each other over property. Members of the family at Ballylicky were often drawn into these disputes, which caused considerable anxiety, heartache and anger. Ellen was extremely discreet about this in her letters to Dawson Turner and only alluded to troubles. By 1813, things had clearly become much worse as Ellen described in her letter to Dawson Turner. My situation is one of uncommon misery. I look around me and see no person so surrounded with troubles. But why, my dear sir, should I trouble you with my sufferings when I cannot explain my story? I can only say that some disputes in my family have for years oppressed my spirits and broken my heart. Ellen was to spend her final days at Ardnagashel Estate, which stretched along the shore west of Snave Bridge. The estate was founded by Ellen's older brother, Arthur Hutchins, in 1800, and Ellen moved there after her mother died in Bandon in 1814. By this time, Ellen herself was seriously ill and being nursed by Arthur's wife, Matilda. It was Matilda who wrote to Dawson Turner... Beloved Miss Hutchins breathed her last in my arms on the ninth of this month. That was February 1815, just before Ellen's 30th birthday. She had been suffering from a liver complaint, which was being treated by her doctor with mercury. She bequeathed her herbarium to Dawson Turner, her great friend who had corresponded with her up until her death. Kumhola. I am quite strong and out and about before seven o'clock in the morning with the workmen. I sometimes think you would be amused to see me among a dozen mountaineers, some of them wild enough like goats. I envy their spirits and activity, poor and ragged as they are. Ellen was fortunate to have the beautiful Kumhola area near her home at Ballyliki. Part of the bearer way between Kalekill and Glengariff, the Corricomon Loop Walk provides a wonderful opportunity to follow in Ellen's footsteps and discover this special place for yourself. The walk starts near Coomhola Bridge and continues through some beautiful woodland before opening out onto heath and blanket bog. The trail returns to the Coomhola Bridge downhill through forestry and along a quiet boreen. Be sure to look out for the purple blooms and sticky green leaves of large-flowered butterwort, one of Ireland's few insect-eating plants, which Ellen once described as 
a most beautiful plant and great ornament to marshy places in spring. The plant is typical of West Cork's wet heaths and blanket bogs and is only found in southwest Ireland and the northwestern part of the Iberian Peninsula. Also present here are two much less conspicuous but still very pretty insectivorous plants, pale butterwort and round-leaved sundew. Along the route, in clear weather, there are fantastic 360-degree views covering much of the area that Ellen explored. County Cork's highest mountain, the 706-metre-high Knock Boy, can be seen to the north. Glengariff and the Caha Mountains can be seen to the west and Bantry Bay and Widdy Island to the south. The long stretch of woodland that runs along the shoreline was formerly part of Ardnagashal Estate, where Ellen's brothers, Arthur and later Samuel, established their fine arboretum. This contained an impressive collection of trees from all over the world, including cork oaks, a cryptomeria from Japan, a willow-leaf podocarp from Chile, and a splendid series of fir trees. The Hutchins family clearly kept up some of Ellen's botanical connections as the fir trees came from Kew Gardens, London. They were obtained when Samuel spent six weeks in lodgings on Kew Green, in the gardens every day with Sir William Jackson Hooker, the first director of the gardens. When speaking to Turner about his monograph of liverworts, Hooker noted that Miss Hutchins' discoveries alone will form an appendix as large as the work itself. And he also wrote that it may also, with truth be said, that she finds everything. Lord Kenmare, in his notes on Ellen's father, also describes Ballylicky and Bantry Bay. This farm, Ballylicky, is some of the best land in that country and has the additional convenience of a very fine bog communicating with the harbour of Bantry, where ships of a hundred tons berthed can lie in the greatest safety and load and unload with great ease. The tenant carries on a great fishing trade along the coast of Bearhaven and takes every year great quantities of herring, cod, ling, etc. In the same bay is a good oyster bed. His father, Ellen's grandfather, ran much into smuggling, but he, Ellen's father Thomas, at my persuasions promised to desist as it ever ends in ruin of those who attempt it, besides preventing their attention to husbandry and better industry. The Hutchins family also has a connection with the failed 1796 rebellion by Wolf Tone and the French Armada. Ellen's eldest brother, Emmanuel Hutchins, had befriended Wolf Tone while they were both studying law at Trinity College, Dublin. As Wolfe Tone waited off the coast of Bantry Bay with the fleet of warships, he was told by the ship's pilot that Emmanuel lived in the area and was at home. Wolfe Tone noted in his diary that he hoped to meet him the next day, after the successful invasion. The stormy weather, however, forced Wolfe Tone and the Armada to retreat and prevented the rebellion from succeeding. Priests Leap The world felt light and full, ranging over the heath. Here I find advantage in such a remote country that one can ramble about as one wants. 
Where else could I be left alone to ramble among the rocks and mountains? Or take only a little boy or girl to bring my basket and box? The Priest's Leap is a steep and winding road which passes just below the summit of County Cork's highest mountain, Knock Boy, and crosses the border between counties Cork and Kerry. The pass is so called because a priest is said to have leapt from it on horseback to escape pursuing soldiers. He reputedly landed near Bantry where a rock still bears the marks of his horse's hooves. The views from the priest's leap are breathtaking and relatively unchanged since Ellen's time. Lewis Dillwyn, the Welsh botanist who visited Ellen in 1809, wrote, The prospect from its summit is very grand and extensive. To the southward, the smooth and glassy surface of Bantry Bay, with its numerous creeks and inlets, formed a fine contrast to the dark line of its surrounding mountains and a large tract of country with the Atlantic Ocean beyond as if spread out in a map beneath us. Ellen derived great pleasure from the countryside visible from here, the rocky seashore, the fast-flowing rivers, the lakes and the mountains of Bantry Bay. She had a great appreciation of beauty and describes her finds enthusiastically as A very elegant little species. Exquisite little beauties. Treasures. Extremely beautiful. And... What a pretty little plant. In the early 1800s, the Priest's Leap was the main route between Bantry and Kenmare. But it was not an easy passage. Lewis Dillwyn describes it as... A tremendous mountain for a carriage to pass and can only be accomplished with great difficulty on which account we found a respectable farmer with 15 of the peasantry waiting by Mr. Hutchins' order in readiness to assist us. The men would have carried the carriage over the mountain pass. Trinity College Dublin botanist James Townsend Mackay recorded finding the rare plant walled caraway on the Kenmare side of the mountain. With its bunches of small white flowers, if you are lucky and determined, you might still find this pretty plant in the area. Ellen recorded several relatively rare plants growing at the summit of Knockboy, which can still be found here today, over 200 years later. They include dwarf willow, which at just a few centimetres high is the tiniest tree species in Ireland, and the rare, low-growing stag's horn club moss, which was rediscovered recently, having not been seen in Southwest Ireland in over 100 years. The ecological importance of the site is recognised in modern times in its designation as a special area of conservation called Derry Clogher, Knockboy Bog. For adventurous and experienced walkers, a three-kilometre trek will bring you to the 706-metre summit of Knockboy Mountain. Glengariff Woods Nature Reserve Of Grimia number three, I can get some more where it grows. A very favourite spot by the rocky, woody side of a little waterfall particularly dear to me as the place of growth of Jungermania trichophylla, one of my new species and many mosses. I have spent many happy hours creeping among its rocks and never quitted it without regret. 
The name Glengarriff is derived from the Irish Glengarriff, meaning rough or rugged glen. The setting of the reserve is spectacular, with the woodlands nestled in a sheltered glen which opens out into the beautiful Glengarriff Harbour. Above the woods rise the Caha Mountains, with their dramatic exposed layers of old red sandstone. The reserve covers some 300 hectares and offers one of the best examples of oceanic sessile oak woodland in Ireland. The woods formed part of the large Bantry House estate during the period Ellen was undertaking her expeditions here. Now, with its range of attractive walking trails, the reserve is owned and managed by the National Parks and Wildlife Service and is part of a much larger special area of conservation. The very mild and damp climate of West Cork, with its oceanic influence, is perfect for the growth of mosses, liverworts and ferns. Throughout the woods, the trees can be seen to be dripping with these epiphytes. Look out for the very beautiful and rare greyish-green leafy liverwort, which Ellen discovered growing near a waterfall. Named in her honour, Miss Hutchins Hollywood nowadays usually goes by the shorter, non-gender-specific name, Hutchins Hollywood. Look out also for some of the species that Ellen recorded here, which are so-called Lusitanian species, unique to southwestern Ireland and the northwestern Iberian Peninsula, such as St. Patrick's cabbage, kidney saxifrage and Irish spurge which was once used for an unorthodox method of fishing. As Ellen recounted, The country people here poison fish with it by putting it in rivers, and they eat the fish without injury. One of the special trees in Glengariff Woods is the strawberry tree, native to the Mediterranean and parts of Ireland but not Britain. The second part of its Latin name, Arbutus unido, is said to mean, I eat only one perhaps because the fruit compare unfavourably to real strawberries. There are also many species growing in West Cork now that were not present during Ellen's lifetime, as they were not introduced here until the mid to late 1800s. Most significantly, they include invasive species such as Rhododendron ponticum and Japanese knotweed, both of which can have a detrimental impact on local biodiversity if not controlled. Hungry Hill and the Healy Pass. I now write in a great hurry, as I am going to the mountains for a few days, to a place where I shall do nothing but walk and gather beauties. You are very kind to wish to see me, but at present there is, I fear, no possibility of anything so agreeable as it would be to me to become acquainted with such a family as I image yours. I write in such a hurry I hardly know what I have scribbled, for I am in the very agonies of going to the mountains. I hope to bring some things to send you. We know that Ellen ventured west down the Berra Peninsula in her pursuit of a full record of the flora of the area. In Ellen's day, the most common way to travel down the peninsula was by boat, as the roads were extremely rough. Either by sea or by track, getting to Hungry Hill would have been a major expedition for Ellen. When her health was good, and she was not suffering from her bilious complaint, coughs or headaches, then she delighted in going among the mountains, and when she could not manage it, she wrote 
How my spirit flies to the mountains, when my limbs will hardly bear me about on the plains. We know that she climbed Sugarloaf and Hungry Hill and was willing to go to great lengths to find specific plants. Ellen clearly derived great pleasure from being active and being useful by finding things for her botanist friends. She describes Dawson Turner's request for the plant list as the best and pleasantest prescription I have ever got. And elsewhere wrote, If I can do anything for you, pray tell me. Working for oneself is very dull, but to do anything for another person gives one spirit to proceed. Considering that Ellen suffered from ill health, it is extraordinary that she managed to climb to the top of the 685-metre-high Hungry Hill. At its summit, Ellen would have found the ancient cairn, which still stands to this day, and several other standing stones to the south and east of the mountain. On its eastern side are two lakes, Kumadavalik and Kumakan, both of which drain into the Mare's Tail Waterfall the highest waterfall in both Ireland and the UK. Some of the plants Ellen recorded on Hungry Hill can still be found near the summit today and include crowberry with its little black berries, harebell with its violet-blue bell-shaped flowers, the Arctic alpine plant stiff sedge and roseroot with its fleshy leaves and greenish-yellow flowers. The site is part of Hungry Hill Bog Natural Heritage Area. For experienced hill walkers, it's a tough but rewarding six-kilometre climb to the summit of Hungry Hill from the top of the Healy Pass. Conclusion the countryside and coast of Bantry Bay provided a rich and exciting hunting ground for a young woman with an enduring passion and curiosity about the natural world. Ellen was fortunate in her early years to have met Dr Stokes, who introduced her to the world of botany and its leading practitioners at the time. However, it was her perseverance, her talent for identification and recording, and her skill as an artist which led to her success in the field. Ellen's achievements are even more impressive, considering that she suffered from physical ill health throughout her short life. Additionally, the family disputes that she alludes to in her letters must have provided yet more obstacles for her to overcome. That Ellen accomplished so much, both personally and professionally, despite these difficulties, speaks volumes of her strength of character, her intellectual acuity, and her personal warmth. Thank you for listening to this audio guide about the life and work of Ellen Hutchins, Ireland's first female botanist. We hope you've enjoyed the guide and visiting the wonderful sights around Bantry Bay that so inspired Ellen. This guide was produced by Abarta Heritage in conjunction with the Ellen Hutchins Festival. It was grant-aided by the Heritage Council and the Fisheries Local Action Group South. We would like to thank Madeline Hutchins, Claire Herdman and Angela O'Donovan for all their insights, help and contributions to this guide.
For further details and information about Ellen's life and work, please visit ellenhutchins.com. To hear other stories of Ireland, please visit abartaheritage.ie.